welcome to Oranges and Beaches, welcome. everybody. We have another very, very, very special guest yeah. who we're been really excited blessed about. with guests. This yeah. is yeah. That's so good. Blessed guests. Yeah. Um, so, Ponta, do you want to introduce yourself just real quick? Yeah. My name is Ponta Leon Flores III. Um, I use he, him pronouns, and I'm a local farmer. Awesome. Yeah. And we are so excited to have you on the podcast yes, today because in part, you are like... Um, just a really inspiring and articulate, like, visionary <laughs> where things can go politically and, like, agriculturally in our country and in our, you know, sort of local area, yeah. too. Um, yeah. So, so thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. We just do this podcast to talk to people. To people we really cool. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, you should not listen to our episode with Courtney because it's, it's just embarrassing. us gushing. This one's oh, going to be embarrassing, amazing. too. It's going to be really yeah. embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay. okay. And so before we get started with our updates, Ponta, we want to know, um, do you know about Oranges and Peaches? I'm not sure where the name came from. No, I'm not. I don't know. Okay. okay. I think I explained it last time. I think this is you. I don't know. It's been a long time. So okay. I feel like I just talked a lot too. So I feel like you should go. <laughs> okay. Or- you do oranges, you do peaches. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That'd be cute. <laughs> So I have not yet been to library school, but apparently this is a library school joke um, about the importance of a reference interview. So uh, the the joke, I guess, goes that a kid runs up to a librarian at the desk and says, I have a report due tomorrow. Like, kid's totally frantic. Is like, I need this book, Oranges and Peaches. And the librarian does a search and nothing comes up. And... They start talking to the kid and get enough details to realize that it's origin of species and not oranges oh. and peaches. <laughs> uh, so it's not that funny of a joke, but no. it's like a reminder <laughs> of the fact that maybe the initial question is going to be uh, not helpful and that you have to actually like have a conversation with somebody and, and get to the bottom of what they're looking for. So it it gets worse the more we tell it, it honestly. Really <laughs> it really does. I feel like at the beginning it was like succinct and kind of funny at least. Well, and, and we we couldn't quite remember the details, so it was a little bit more like yeah. what? But no. sorry. We really The former English teacher in me also sees the like cite your references properly joke uh, in that or like underlying teachable yeah. moment at least if yeah. not joke. So yeah, That's a good go. addition. <laughs> yeah, we should add that next time. Uh, okay. Anyway, anyway, yeah. But yes, that's just so you know. We like to like why tell we called people. it this. Yeah. yeah, yeah, to try to bring people into the fold. It's like librarian gossip realm. <laughs> anyway, okay. So um, our first update mm-hmm. is about uh, the elections. Oh yeah. Yes. So tomorrow is the last day to register for the primary election to vote, and of mm-hmm. course, by the time this podcast comes out, it will be too late. So sorry if you're listening. We really hope that you hope that you got in there. That you listened to our last mm-hmm. podcast episode. <laughs> yes. Um, but so the primary election is August second, and the things that will be on that ballot are not just the constitutional question about the right to an abortion in Kansas, but. Um, so according to the elections office, they call it nominations for statewide offices. So whether you're, you know, affiliated with Democrats or Republicans, um, you'll vote for uh, who will then go on to be your candidate in the general election. Everyone knows this, but um, <laughs> the statewide offices, state representatives, county commissioners, precinct committee people, and township officers, and the constitutional question are what are on the primary ballot. So it's so important. It's a big primary. It's huge. Yeah. yeah. Um, hope that you are registered, listeners. Yes. We will link to our wonderful elections and voting resource page that Hazlitt does a beautiful job on every single year. Um, And that's got links to where and how to register, which will be too late, uh, how to find your polling place, Mm -hmm. where to go if you have questions. Mm -hmm. um, Info about candidates. Who the candidates are. Yeah. Places mm-hmm. to research, so yeah, all kinds of stuff on there. And the elections office tells us to send people who want to register to ksvotes.org. Yes. So if you're not registered now, you can still register for the general election almost certainly because our listeners, mm-hmm. I think, probably listen to this. I don't know, whatever. <laughs> ksvotes.org is a place to go. We are not elections. We're not elections officials. <laughs> Do you know about <laughs> At this? All. this? Is that like a required? Illegal. Like you have to say that part. Yeah. 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 <laughs> like yes. a recent law that yeah, wants to you penalize. Have to be. Very clear about that. Yeah. Yeah. So we're not. 
elections officials. No. Yeah. That's kind of a theme of the podcast too. We're like, we're not lawyers. <laughs> yeah, we we're not like officials. A lot. We're yeah. not doctors. What else are we not? I don't know. We're not farmers. That's we're not farmers. <laughs> no, okay. we can find an expert. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. So that's, that's yes. first update. Cool. Um, mm-hmm. Second update. Uh, I think we want to hear about how your growing season is going. Oh, yeah. It's it's a very different growing season from most. Uh, We have a six-month-old at home. So as primary caregiver to our six-month-old, I have had to really fine-tune what I have decided to grow and do with the farm this year. I have about three hours Monday through Friday to, like, work on it and then, like, all day Sunday. And so I really, really had to focus on what what was really important to me. So this year it's mostly about establishing perennial plants that will come back mm-hmm. from year to year and produce food. And uh, a lot of that's like culinary herbs and, and things like mm-hmm. that. And then to really focus on uh, the crops that are really important to me. So I do some ancestral research and growing mm-hmm. with the farm. And I focused on five main crops that are from Guanajuato in uh, in Mexico, where my great-grandfather came from. And so those are corn beans and squash I just recently obtained the seeds for the beans and the squash this year from one of the seed banks. Uh, there's a, wow. b- a bunch of different seed banks. Um, and I proposed a research idea and they uh, sent the seed. And then the corn is, uh, I've been selectively breeding for about three years. And it's like a, mm-hmm. uh, a purple, white, and purple and white speckled uh, flint corn for making flour and masa and stuff. Cool. cool. And so the breeding goal with that is to just be able to grind it into lavender-colored masa, essentially. Cool. Cool. Lavender-colored tamales. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. I can't Beautiful. wait to buy that from wow. you. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, two other, the other two um, is a landrace pea, which for anybody listening, landrace is like even older than heirloom. So like it's been around for an extremely, extremely long time. Uh, But that's a a snap pea and a snow pea. And then the other one uh, is peanuts. So yeah, there's a a peanut from Guanajuato that I'm also growing this year. First time growing peanuts. They're a really interesting plant. Um, for folks who don't know, I'm the, embarrassed to say I, I can't even like. visualize yeah, like no what idea. that it, looks like. It blew my mind. So it's like a very small shrubby bush to start with, and okay. it gets quite a bit bigger, and then it puts off flowers. And the weird thing about it is that the flowers <laughs> send out a little peg, and the peg then goes into the soil, and that's where the peanut oh. grows. Oh, like, my God. What? Like you think Whoa. of like, you know, they grow underground, which is something that still not everybody knows, but... They don't just grow underground just like the whole time. They come out as a flower. The oh flower God. sends out this stick thing that then jabs and then it itself finds the ground. into the ground. <gasps> Wait, so the shrubby thing is like there's the roots are sending it. Hmm. Yeah, so the roots are down there. Wow. They send out their foliage, their flowers. Their flowers send out a peg. The peg goes into the soil. <laughs> and then that end of the peg is where the peanut grows. Oh my, and one that peanut so per cool. peg? Yes. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I, I honestly thought peanuts were kind of boring until now, and I've I just it's like it's like when you like cashews yeah. or pecans or whatever, right? Oh, that cashews, it's like yeah, the but cashew it's like, apple and then the, the right, little, like, yeah. yeah, yeah. But it's the same. <laughs> it's like one nut per fruit, right? So it's like, how do we get so many? Well, peanuts? if you want me to blow your mind a little bit more, okay, yeah. So you know how like corn has that little silk yeah. coming out of the top of it? <laughs> Every single silk is connected to one kernel. So if that silk. <laughs> doesn't get pollen on it, that kernel doesn't fill. Oh, my gosh. And so in, in Mexica or in indigenous Mexican culture, the, the corn is very symbolic of, of fertility uh, mm. and, and of birth because, you know, that's like the umbilical cord for every single kernel, that silk. Wow. So, yeah, if, if <laughs> yeah, so it's like every silk goes to one kernel in the whole corn. And if it doesn't get pollinated, that one kernel doesn't fill. But it corn is, that, is magical. Is that common <laughs> that like a like a corn cob will only get like partway pollinated and? I mean, for yeah, there's definitely <laughs> some that I only... have grown some super shitty corn. Oh, yeah? So, yes. oh yeah? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you definitely have to have a big enough population so that enough it's wind pollinated. So the wind oh, is the one yeah. blowing the pollen around. So. You know, everything has to get dusted. Or you have to go in and hand pollinate, which some people do. Right. I'll shake the pollen into a bag and then go and sprinkle, just like a corn fairy, just sprinkle, like, pollen on all the silks, which is very intense, very – I haven't haven't done it yet. Yeah. But uh, I may try it this year, actually. Right. Sounds yeah. fun. Yeah, so I have those five uh, uh-huh. crops from Guanajuato. And then I also love growing jicama. Mm-hmm. Are you all familiar with jicama? 
the uh, root not growing yeah, not, no yeah it's a tropical root vegetable that i found out from just trial that you know three seasons ago or two seasons ago i found out i just tried to grow it i was like let's see if we have a season for it and it grows beautifully i get softball oh, size yeah. jicamas wow and oh, they taste so good fresh out of the ground like oh, at the God. store they have to get waxed they're stored yeah. for a very long time and you know it's understandable that they they still taste good but like if you put them side by side you would yeah. never want to wax one ever again. Like they're just, they taste basically, it's a root vegetable that tastes like an apple with the crisp of a pear. Yeah. Hickama is so good. And you oh can sprinkle God. like so chili powder on it or I love like soaking it in coconut milk and then sprinkling cinnamon oh. on it for like a horchata like styled hickama. Oh my God. So yeah, hickama is another really big crop this year. And then I'm growing four different colors of patty pan zucchinis, like patty pan squash, nice. little UFO looking squash. Uh-huh. It's like a light green, <laughs> a green, a yellow, and a white. Cool. And then what else am I growing? Oh, a few Peruvian peppers. Um, my partner's Peruvian, so we grow uh, a lot of those that we can't find in grocery stores here. Mm-hmm. So there's the ají limo, the ají amarillo, and the ají panca. So those are three of the most important peppers in Peruvian cooking. And then also this really jet purple Peruvian potato that's like fingerling shape, but kind of lumpy looking. Cool. <laughs> and so I'm growing that one and I bought seed potato for it, which was really expensive. <laughs> it was a lot to buy. So I'm, I'm going to try to hold over some of those tubers to plant for next year. And then I'm also going to harvest the potato berries, which carry the true potato seed in them. So they're potato seeds, if you talk about it from like a... a, a seed perspective as, as opposed to like the potato and growing it like that mm-hmm. are about the size of like tomato seeds, like cherry tomato seeds, Ooh. super tiny, also mm. in the same plant family. Wow. So that's why they look so similar. Oh. Um, but I'm going to harvest the the potato berries from that and try to actually save like tr- it's called true potato seed um, wow. just as like a backup to mm. the tubers uh, holding over tubers. So uh, there's always a lot of experimentation going on <laughs> on the farm. And I'm getting to the point where I'm not trying all of the things. I'm trying to really hone in. That's what this season, kind of coming back to the question, that's what this season is about, is honing in on what's really important for me and what I really want to grow. Um, Oh, and sunflowers. I grew a a plot of about a thousand sunflowers. Yeah, it's all like, it's all in bloom (laughs) right now too. It's just a big block of like really big snacker size. So like, you know, like the ones you can actually snack on size. Um, Or I could press for oil if I could find somebody who has uh, a press. But all of our listeners, if you have a press. (laughs) Right, you've got a press. Hit me up. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah, I'd love to have some from the farm sunflowers seed oil. That'd be really cool. Wow. But if not, you know, I'll probably roast a bunch, maybe sell some to our our bird lovers out there Mm. because the the goldfinch really loves the sunflower seeds. So. And it's a really, it's a really cute bird too. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, those are kind of the main things. I also grow grapes and strawberries and rhubarb. <laughs> and I, the list of, of medicinal and culinary herbs is really long. Yeah. I mean, I could. Yeah. There's three different types of thyme, three, four, four different types of mints, like sage. There's one uh, French tarragon, Mexican tarragon, mm-hmm. uh, marigolds, shiso. Round, round leaf chives, Korean flat leaf chives, I'm like going through the beds mentally in my head. Uh, winter <laughs> savory, uh, which is a really beautiful perennial, by the way. It's mm-hmm. like, it's so peppery and delicious. Mm. It's a really good winter crop. Uh, and I also have a 1,200 square foot monarch way station right in the middle of the farm, oh too. So nice. it's, it's a pretty beautiful <laughs> place. And I'm sure I'm forgetting a few plants that will admonish me later for it when I visit <laughs> them in the field. But uh, but yeah, that's that's kind of what's growing on right now. So yeah. Well, and any yeah. you've forgotten, you can tell them that we'll include them in the show notes. Okay. So sweet. they will yes. not be forgotten. Yeah. Okay. Are you growing sunchokes this year? I am. Okay. Yes. They're kind of growing themselves. The, okay. <laughs> anybody who's ever planted them before will be like, one, why did you do that? Because <laughs> they really just kind of like run all over the place. But okay. yeah, I've definitely, okay. definitely got sunchokes. Oh, and the nopales. So the, the eastern nice. prickly pear, that's uh, our Kansas yeah. cactus. Um, and they're a wonderful plant too, because uh, they're kind of like my, my early season soil thermometer. Because in the winter, they kind of just like melt back to the ground and turn like purple and look like just like blur like that. Like that's the sound that they make actually. Uh, so you know they're dormant. No, uh, they, and then uh, once they start standing up, you know that the soil temperature is around 65 degrees. Once they're fully up, then you're right around 70. And those are good indicators for planting different types of things. So oh yeah, God. they're a nice little soil thermometer. God, you're like such a font of knowledge. It's insane. <laughs> like, I learned like five very, like personally useful things. <laughs> <Sweet>. <laughs> yeah. 
That's yeah. what I go for. <laughs> cool. Well, we love the sun chokes too. We like introduce my family to sun chokes. Oh, awesome. And, yeah, we love them. Yeah, me too. <laughs> uh, okay, that was so exciting. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. And this is, <laughs> this is scaling back to raise a child. Yeah. The uh, list. This, this is, is just. This is scaled back. And I, and I, I probably forgot a couple <laughs> Oh my god! Oh, the lemon that's, cucumbers. That's so oh, fantastic! I, how can I forget them and the watermelon? Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> yellow and orange watermelon, by the way. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how long have you been farming that plot? Uh, let's see. I f- oh, I started the farm August 2018, and okay. I was at market by November 1st. Uh-huh. So I actually planted like tons of flats of things the month before not even knowing whether or not I would have access to the land just like keeping my fingers super hard crossed and yeah. was so glad that I did because I was able to get tons of stuff in the ground and uh, be at market at the Cotton's Hardware Farmer's Market that's the Thursday one in the afternoon mm-hmm. uh, and that's the only year-round market in town too for anybody listening winter mm-hmm. market happens there there mm-hmm. you can get local greens at yeah, that market so cool. all year round yeah. so uh, yeah so I got set up there November 1st and I've just kept it going. So. Wow. Dang. <laughs> yeah. <That's>, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. Um, yes. We also love the Cotton's Market because there's music in the summer. Yeah. So it's a great vibe. And one time there were free kittens there, which is not <gasps> great. We don't love free kittens, you know, spay and neuter your cats. But yes. it was really cute to have kittens. <laughs> <laughs> and it was raining. So anyway. Um, okay, great update. Yeah. Um, is there a place where people can like find out updates about your farm? Do you want to share that now, maybe? Mostly through the website, which is masefarm.org. So M A S E F A R M.org. And then uh, my Instagram account, Masewala Kuali Farms, which is very long, but I'm sure we can tag that somehow. Oh, yeah. We will absolutely put it in the show notes. I just wanted anyone who's like, you know, like right now while you're listening, get on your little browser on your phone and. And go there. Yeah, and I'd say contact me through the website or through Instagram. There is a Facebook page, but I am off Facebook and have been for like two years now. So if you send a message there, it's just <laughs> sending it into oblivion. So yeah, good. Yeah. yeah. Not that Instagram isn't Facebook, but I'm just gonna right. pretend like that's not a thing. Yeah, right? that's okay. It's fine. Yeah. 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 Slight very slightly less horrible, but yeah. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a Okay. Another time. Another Another time. time. Another Another podcast. Okay. Let's give our last update, which is just, okay. It's so, it's, okay. Let's give my update very quickly. Then we'll get back to Ponta. So, um, summer reading is still happening. Um, we don't really know on the kiddo side how it's going, but sure it's going great. But on the adult side, I did finish my summer reading last week and I got a koozie that, that we think is the adult summer reading prize is a koozie with a little button and bookmark and a little coupon. But, um, yeah, that's what you have to say. Yeah. Koozie. So if you needed a koozie in your life. Also Hazlitt learned today why... People use them. I still don't, I'm not, still do. not super sure. Wait, what I'm did not you convinced. Think they did with them before. You know, I did just, you think they were decorative? Tiny like piece of foam. I see people with their drinks in them, yeah. but it just seems like decoration. It seems like a little bit of clothing that you put on your drink and you like signal something. Mm-hmm. I don't really believe that it hasn't. I don't know. I think we should just, test it. I think you should get like one can that you put one on, one that you don't, mm-hmm. and that will like really cement. Anyway, that they they do something. It's yeah. cute though. You can also just signal that you like the library with your little there koozie you on your yeah. drink. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'll do. If you know. Yeah. Anyway, okay. And if it happens to stay colder longer, like, <laughs> fine. <sighs> There's okay. a definite science experiment in there. I'm just it's true. I'm just, yeah, yeah. I'm all for it. Do like a research. Yeah, I'm like trying to become a better video editor, so it would be a good little you video. You do like to a time do. lapse of it uh-huh. getting sweaty or not. Mm-hmm. That sounds. Kind of, yeah. Okay. 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 So that's the end of our updates. Um, and now we are going to get back to exciting things. Um, so the sort of central question that we wanted to organize this podcast around. So usually we use a question that we've gotten out of the reference desk mm. that has something to do with, you know, something that's a bit more complicated or we have a lot of resources about and we want to really explain them. But um, today, you know, we were thinking about what is our role in um, sort of like participating in the upcoming elections and mm-hmm. thinking about civic engagement. And then you made this beautiful notebook for the event we had last June um, about contacting your representatives and letting them know, you know, what you care about and also why they should care and, you know, and all that sort of thing. Um, 
so so then so the question that we wanted to talk about this time was yeah like how do we advocate for, for things right like like if you care about something um what do you do about that and how do you let people know and how do you make things happen and the way we're situating this around the ask desk which is our desk is um we get a lot of people who say i need to register to vote can you help me no <laughs> <laughs> But, but we can show you where to go. Answer, yeah. Yeah, like yeah. we can tell you where to go. We cannot help you fill anything out. Mm-hmm. And then we also get questions that are like, like one that I had a few weeks ago was, um, I am looking for your books on starting a nonprofit center for boys in Douglas County. And it was like, well, we do not have a book on that. We don't even really have a resource on that. What we mm-hmm. have is a person to connect you to, you know, or yeah. an organization to connect you to. But it's like this space between people wanting to be civically involved and then having hyper-specific local mm-hmm. questions that require yeah. tons of expertise that, mm-hmm. like, we don't have as, you know. Yeah, like, we might people. we might luck out and just sort of know someone who's working on something similar but right. there's mm-hmm. yeah it's right. not like oh let's pull up the the database right. for yeah <laughs> making for, a difference for, for things great you answer. care about yeah yeah so, so so yeah so this is our episode for the people who come to the desk in the future and say i am really passionate about something maybe food apartheid yeah and we say that's great we <laughs> talk to someone who is knowledgeable about um like working the political system that's you. Yeah. So for me, uh, the question that I would, you know, if I was like on the other side of the desk, maybe I'd say I care about just maybe be more general. I care about people having enough to eat. So, you know, even removing some of that more detailed mm. language of like food apartheid, which everybody may not have yet heard, mm-hmm. but really breaking it down to the core of the fact that we have a 12.8% of the population in our county that doesn't eat three meals a day. Right. So I care about people having enough to eat. Uh, and then the how can I advocate for it part, I guess, is why you all brought me here, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. And so for anyone who doesn't know, food apartheid is a way of talking about um, food deserts and mm-hmm. people having access to um, the food they want to eat or not having access to it. Yeah. You, I'm sure can yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, you know, people use the terms food deserts because that's what the USDA has used. Mm-hmm. That's just what's been typically used in research fields and in, uh, you know, in any, really in any conversation around a lack of food, it's been food deserts for a very long time. And, um, you know, food apartheid is really a term that, you know, puts an actor into that situation. Right. The desert is like a place that exists naturally and it's just like a part of the earth. But like, the fact that people don't have enough to eat doesn't just happen in a vacuum. Like there are mm-hmm. actors in it. Uh, there are things that are are barriers for people. And um, that's why, uh, you know, I really advocate for using the food apartheid label for mm-hmm. sure. Totally. Um, okay. Well, let's just get started, I yeah, guess. Yeah, for sure. Our, we have so many questions. We have so many questions. <laughs> okay. um, yeah, I think we just want to hear first about, like, how did you learn how to become an advocate in this way? What's your origin story? Yeah, I mean, you know, I I grew up with enough food to eat for sure. Um, but, you know, in especially during my graduate career when I was at KU because I had my master's in curriculum instruction, um, you know, there, there were definitely times where I chose between eating and paying rent, right? Mm-hmm. Eating and paying bills. And you know which one of those comes first because it's the one more imminent to you. <laughs> like my water will get shut off or I will be evicted or... Right. Um, and so, you know, I, I come to this work from a perspective of having been in that situation, um, you know, where I'm like finding out where they're serving pizza for free at an event on campus <laughs> just to make sure yeah. I can yep. like try to yeah. take some home or yeah. whatever or get a meal that day for whatever... Um, and so that's that's really where a lot of this a lot of this work for me is grounded in. Um, the other part of it is, you know, like my grandpa had a salsa garden in his backyard, and so like I saw what people can do if they're allowed to. And we're lucky in Lawrence because we have really good regulations or pretty good regulations on growing food mm-hmm. um, that a lot of other places don't have. Um, but you know, seeing what can be done just in your own backyard with a few seeds, right? If you have if you're lucky enough to have access to land that you can work with. Um, and so it comes from a lot of different things. It comes from, yeah, really like seeing my family, you know, use their access to land to, to supplement their food. Um, and then also from a perspective of not having enough food myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. And then I guess the other background would be kind of like how I got into all of this work was I was uh, co-directing a food security nonprofit in Berkeley, California for about three years. Oh, whoa. And oh, very, God. very much fell into that. My path into agriculture is kind of interesting and kind of sad in some ways, actually. So um, I mentioned I have a master's in education. Mm-hmm. Um, I was advertised by the University of Kansas that I would actually have a teaching license or a route to get one. Mm-hmm. And that ended up not being true. So I had my whole teacher so career just yeah. like, boop, just pulled right out from under me. Oh my God. And then, you know, there, you know, Brownback was still in office, mm-hmm. not to get too hyper-political here, but <laughs> there were no jobs or real opportunities for folks. And so, you know, California was like a place where I heard there were jobs and that was the next move. So went out there, was trying to find jobs in like the, you know, private English teaching sphere, mm-hmm. found one that was pretty good for a little while. That center ended up closing from needing to move from gentrification. There's a whole bunch Mm -hmm. of things with that. Mm -hmm. But I had been volunteering um, with that nonprofit ever since I moved to California. And uh, one day they just approached me and were like, we know you've been searching for jobs for a while. You put in so many hours Mm -hmm. here. You live in the neighborhood. Like, do you want to co-direct the Mm -hmm. nonprofit? And I was like, yeah. (laughs) And so I got to, you know, as a job, um, apprentice under a farmer who'd been farming for well over 20 years and an herbalist mm-hmm. who'd been farming and, and practicing herbalism for well over 20 years. Mm-hmm. And so I did that for three. And honestly, if you want to get into agriculture and you can, you can find the route in, you know, working for a nursery is an amazing place to start. Mm-hmm. You can, you know, starting with the seed, literally just starting with seeds, uh, learning how to propagate and make new plants from other plants. Um, keeping those alive in their very delicate early stages. Um, And then, you know, the other half of the uh, nonprofit was a community farm. So then planting them out and then taking them to harvest. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So very like, like, (laughs) very roundabout (laughs) way to get into it. But yeah, a lot of background in a couple different ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so yeah. I imagine the advocacy came into a lot of the work at the nonprofit. But yeah, I mean, we were there in South Berkeley, California, which, I mean, Berkeley barely recognizes South Berkeley and Oakland kind of takes it in. And if anybody mm. knows anything about Oakland, Oakland is the home of the Black Panthers. So there's a lot of food movement mm-hmm. um, with that with that party. So, you know, we definitely uh, had classes and talked about people power and organizing mm, and cool. food justice and sovereignty and... Um, yeah, I definitely got a really solid political education rooted in community hmm. while I was out there as well. Cool. Yeah, that sounds like such fertile ground to then come back to mm-hmm. Lawrence. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And start doing what, what. So did so after Berkeley, did you come back to Lawrence and immediately kind of get into the incubator farm or? Yeah, yeah. So California got real expensive. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it already was when I moved out there. Um, yeah, so. Yeah, came back to Kansas, really picked Lawrence because of the incubator farm program. Oh, cool. It was just like, you know, most of my family's in Topeka, Kansas City. Lawrence is the middle. Mm-hmm. I have my bachelor's and my master's here, so I know it pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, the incubator farm program, I haven't, I didn't find another program that provided the kind of access to land that that does. I mean, it's $100 per acre per year plus your water bill. Wow. Is is your access there? And I I'm on three quarters of an acre. I think it's like 0.8 acres technically, but you know, like I, buying even that small amount of land was is so far out of right. reach for me. I yeah. mean, I'm yeah. I'm severely in debt from that master's program that didn't give me what it promised. <laughs> oh my god! And uh, and land is just is just astronomically priced. It's priced for industries to come in and build factories, and mm-hmm. that's yeah. basically it. And unless if you want a monocrop. Um, and and do more conventional agriculture with you know one point two million dollar loans yeah. that I would never be handed in a lifetime. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so yeah, I mean that that incubator farm program is really what what brought me back. Hmm. That's interesting that it's unique. Like I don't very yeah. yeah I don't yeah. think there's that. more popping up around the country, but it's it's still pretty rare. Yeah. Oh. We will link to that. We will program. link to it. Yeah. yeah common yeah. ground. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we got to yeah. keep it funded because uh, it's it's a city-county joint venture. It's really a city program okay. that the county sustainability office that is now, I think, just a month ago officially 
is has been broken away from the city that the city mm-hmm. may no longer be funding. Oh no. But the common ground program is still included in the city's responsibilities. So hopefully they will continue to at least adequately fund that program. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um as the county restructures and as the city tries to decide what it wants to do about sustainability because it really just kind of I don't know the interworkings of it, <laughs> but it sounds like a breakup to me. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Not a great one. It's sustainability. Come on. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> like that should be an office that maybe has both city and accounting. Right. Office. Right. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, that's I'd a great segue. I'd love to know <laughs> the local. Find an expert on that. Bring him in. Yeah. Listen adamantly. <laughs> bring in um, like Kim Ritchie. But um, – Okay, great segue. First of all, I just want to I just want to notice that so you lease uh, three quarters of an acre, yeah. and everything that you talked about <laughs> at the beginning of the episode is on the. It's like it's such an amazing value yeah. that you're providing to the city. It's like imagine if we had ten of those that were around oh, Lawrence. Yeah, you know, it'd yeah. be like just beautiful and productive. And oh, like, and trust me, I've scoured the the property viewer uh-huh. of the county, and there's a lot of city and county land that's just there. Yeah. Like the like that lot next to Hobbs Park. I always wonder about mm. it. Being it's, driving lawnmower every two right. days. And I love it. Right, I love yeah. like a lot. Like I love to see the grasses. Well, in like South Park, uh, if there's one of those signs to, uh, down there that says that it used to be used for farming to feed oh, local uh-huh. people. Like there used to be a farm in South Park. Right. Yeah. I think we need some pictures of your farm for this. Um, oh, yeah. For the show notes. Oh, yeah. to I show can definitely people. get you some of those. Cool. So, but, so then this segues definitely yeah. into, um, into, into, if these sound like good things to you, listener, like the incubator program and having this sort of agricultural uh, uh, activity in Lawrence, um, how do you advocate for it? How do you tell elected officials that this is something you want more of? Um, do you want to start? I, I don't know. Wherever you want to take it next is okay. Do you want to yeah. talk more about food as a public work or about... Just um, one little... Se- I think there's a segue into it, okay. actually. So there, the city, I believe it's the city, is restructuring its open spaces plan, mm-hmm. which decides what to do with those spaces that are open. Oh, yeah. Right? And yeah. so um, this would be a very great time oh to really advocate for agriculture and access to land for folks who want to do the kind of work that I do or, you know, just start a farm generally um, and really think about and advocate for us preserving our agricultural resources. Because as it currently stands, we're just constantly losing agriculturally zoned land to residential Mm -hmm. and to industrial. Um, There is a multi-billion dollar company in town that holds 80 acres of land in their portfolio that could just one day decide to sell it to someone who will build a factory right on the river. Uh, not going to name names, but, uh, I've been following that one for a while. Mm. Um, and so, you know, as we, as we switch from agriculturally zones, uh, you know, agricultural zoning into residential industrial, you can never go back. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're, you're putting down cement, Mm -hmm. you're ripping up, uh, the topsoil we have left and dumping it somewhere basically (laughs) to like maybe plug in a bunch of plants that aren't even native to this continent and just water the heck out of them. (laughs) Like, you know, it's, you can't go back. You just can't. And so we really have to think about preserving those agricultural spaces, um, especially along the river. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, when we're thinking about how we, uh, how we utilize our open spaces or how we want land to be managed in the future, agriculture has got to be up there because like everyone eats, right? Mm, Um, and that's the thing about it. And this is the segue, like the resources are there. The land is there. The money is there. And we'll get into that, especially at the federal level. Um, and that's kind of where I jump into like my idea of food as a public work. Because like like I said, we have the land. That's like one of the biggest obstacles usually to starting anything agriculturally is like mm-hmm. getting the land and having sustained access to it. Um, and then the monetary resource. So food as a public work, just as like an elevator pitch is essentially moving from subsidizing the consumption of food, which is what food stamps and SNAP programs do, which are very needed, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, we, you know, you have, you get money from the government and then you go and buy things from corporate agriculture in the grocery store, mm-hmm. which is also a corporation, uh, typically. And then that's it. That's the deal. Um, it's subsidizing consumption. If we were to move into subsidizing production, we could not only be creating sustainable agriculture jobs, but then also, in my plan, realizing between five to six million dollars worth of free food every year for a million dollar operating budget. 
So in the plan, you've got 16 food systems workers who work across uh, vegetable, orchard, animal production, and then also food logistics because you got to know where the food needs to go right. and you got to get it there. Um, and those 16 workers comprise about 14 full-time workers worth of hours of actual production time, which uh, according to you know the, the research I've done, which is basically some farmers opening up their books and showing me what they can do with how many people. <laughs> cool. And so that you know, precedence there. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's that you know we're gonna measure dollar for dollar and not just you know like this many pounds went to blah blah blah. No, we're gonna measure in <laughs> in capitalism. Um, and with that many labor hours, you can produce between five and six million dollars worth of food. Wow. And the food as a public work idea would also be doing prepared meals because as someone mm-hmm. who you know when I was a graduate student full time working. 32 hours a week because they wanted to cap me under the ACA. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) And then working a side gig online uh, that didn't count towards that to get insurance, whatever. Uh, Not bitter. Uh, (laughs) uh, You know, I still just like, you couldn't just throw fresh produce at me and I wouldn't, I wouldn't be fine. You know, Mm -hmm. there's not, there's not time in the day um, Mm -hmm. because you need to make as much money as you can. And so, you know, I, I came to the idea also of incorporating prepared foods uh, for a couple reasons. One, um, I was volunteering with Food Not Bombs locally for a couple years, and I was really thinking about like our impact, right? And I was like, economic impact. Okay, well, we use tons of local produce. Like one solid year of that, we practically had local produce in every single meal. Wow. So like we were doing free farm to table, which is what yeah. that means, yeah. right? Amazing. That's what that yeah. free vegan farm to table. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, we have this many people working. We're providing about 100 meals a week. And I was calculating it out. We were doing half a million dollars worth of food service a year. Wow. With six people. Yeah. One time a week. Yeah. And so, like, if you think about the economic impact of that alone and you think about let's set aside just a million dollars for an operating budget, you're getting half of that back in one prepared service a week due to, Mm -hmm. and you're already dollar for dollar getting return. Mm -hmm. And then there's all the produce on top of that that would then go to to people in need as well. And so, I mean, like, from a... From a financial standpoint, like find me a city plan that has a better return on investment <laughs> than that. Like find it. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. Anyone listening, find it. <laughs> I challenge you. <laughs> uh, no. Yeah. And so, I mean, food as a public work makes so much sense also with the prepared food side because we're really in need of, of incubator space for people to, to do their own restaurants too. So like if we, yeah. if we, you know, set up the facilities to do all these prepared meals and we're only using it twice a week, that means that we can below market rate rent that space out to people who want to try to start their businesses or do catering businesses or do farmers who want to do value added products can come Mm -hmm. in and use that commercial kitchen at a very, very low affordable price that only just puts money back into food as a public work. Um, The same thing would be true of the processing site, because if we're going to do, let's say, chickens, right, we need a place to slaughter chickens. We need a place to do that properly. We Mm -hmm. need a facility. So we would also have to build that. It's also in the plan about how much, you know, how it would cost to build all that stuff. And it's also about 1.2 million just to start it up. But what that means is that, you know, we're not going to be slaughtering chickens every day because that's not how it works. Mm-hmm. Um, what it means is that there will be local farmers who can actually come in and process their own stuff mm-hmm. uh, to be making local food uh, even more accessible. And we have we have a very severe lack of facilities for that here in our county. Um, the last time it was attempted, I'm glad it was rejected because it was like Tyson chicken trying to come in and do like really, that would have been awful. Like, I'm so glad that they rejected Tyson chicken, but I'm not glad that like small farmers don't have some place to go. And they obviously wouldn't have had that with a company like Tyson. They wouldn't have been able to use their Mm -hmm. facilities, but it would, you know, this place would also be hopefully even potentially partially funded by other farmers being able to come in and use the facilities at a below market rate. That's still obviously sustainable for the facility, mm-hmm. um, but that would all also only increase local, you know, food security and production. So, it's not just a department that's quote unquote just feeding people. It would literally also help businesses. It would help farmers yeah. do value added. It would help catering and like you know people who are aspiring to be chefs set up shop. 
Um, and it would also help farmers uh, have a local, you know, production site for animal stuff. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a lot wrapped into it. Yeah. There's a whole lot wrapped into I it. I mean, talking about public facilities or just facilities that the public will have access to, it's like, you know, we're in Here the recording studio yeah. of the public library. <laughs> yeah. 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 But I mean, we talk about this all the time, just in terms of plain public access to anywhere, like mm-hmm. working at the library, we see how much... We're one of the only places that you can, like, yeah, access publicly. I don't know. Like, that's not true. Obviously, there are more, but we're, it feels like that is, like, diminished so much and continues yeah. to be. And, yeah, like, I don't personally know a lot of people with the the funding if they wanted to open a restaurant to just right. get a right. storefront, get a kitchen, like right. people. Yeah. Right. It's like any sort Very of achievement. Limited. Yeah. Like if you have a goal, like where do you go to work towards that goal? Right. If it's something the library can do for you, like, okay, this is an option right now, but yeah, it, this is like opens up a whole nother field of yeah, yeah. And ways like, to learn. And- like the county extension office does have a kitchen mm-hmm. that you can use, yeah. but the thing you always hear about it is you can never book it because oh, it's so booked all the time. Yeah. Okay. And so to me, that just—that's incredible. Right. The need, demand and it's is a great there, thing, right? Yeah. yeah, right. And so, if we had another one of those, like, yeah. you know, there'd be even more people utilizing it. So, yeah. there's definitely precedent for like people using it and it being a need. Mm-hmm. That's good to know. I was going to ask about the culinary comments, which we will link to in the show notes, mm-hmm. even though you know, might be two years before <laughs> you might get be in. A but serious wait list, yeah. But- yeah. Okay. So if you, if listener, if you are convinced <laughs> by everything Ponte has just said, which you should be, I am very convinced. Um, and you're like, hell yeah. What do I do now? How do I go tell like Patrick Kelly or, <laughs> or the Shannons or, um, someone that this needs to happen? Um, Okay, Ponta, can you take us down that road now? What, yeah. what are the next steps? Yeah, so uh, I have done some work to uh, create resources on my website to help people do this letter writing campaign that we just kicked off last month. Um, so that will be, you know, everybody thinking about what food means to them. Uh, you know, I this is basically their I care about food access for people, and this is why I want to advocate mm-hmm. for it. Mm-hmm. So if we think about that central question, that's really what that is. And yeah. so if you've never written a letter to representatives before, there there is a, a writing workshop um, resource on there to kind of help you with that. There's talking points you can pull from or really just please pull from your own personal experiences, um, what you've experienced potentially with food insecurity or, uh, you know, what your communities have experienced with food insecurity. And, and we're all going to be writing letters to city and county commission is kind of the goal. And once we've got strength in numbers or people powers, uh, we like to call it, um, we'll go and actually read them all together. So I'm hoping to mm. get at least 100 people writing letters and to show up in that kind of strength of numbers to both the city and county commissions. Mm. Um, and, yeah, it, it just... One of the most beautiful things I heard recently was that um, somebody messaged me on Instagram and was like, my family's going to write a letter. And that like, that really, really touched my heart. I loved that idea. So don't, don't also feel like you have to write it by yourself, right? Mm -hmm. So like sit down with the people close to you, have a conversation about food, go to the website, learn a little bit more about what's happening locally and how you, you know, how dire really the situation is here because our food insecure population is higher than the national average. Mm. Um, and so, you know, have that conversation with your family and and write one together. Write one with your friends. Write one with your, with your partners or whoever. Um, organizations can also get involved and write one as an organization. Mm. And there's some more information if you're an organization wanting to write a letter about how to kind of approach that so we can kind of gauge like what that means for like how many people are really supporting it as opposed right. to just like a body of organization like stagnant. It's like, well, there are actually like 50 people behind this letter mm-hmm. and kind of right. just to convey numbers to to the elected officials. Um, and so, yeah, it's really going to the website, writing a letter. Um, I'm hoping it opens a lot of conversations. And the other part of it is, you know, if you have ideas after you've kind of gone through um, what I've proposed and, and you think there's something that could be done better, the thing I've been telling people is read the idea, rip it apart, and let's piece it back <laughs> together together, yeah. right? Because I don't want this to be a movement of, like, central leadership. I mean, right. I was involved with Food Not Bombs because it was decentralized, and mm-hmm. I, that's my approach, and that's the way I want to do it. I want to do community-based work always, uh, first and foremost. And so if you have other ideas, pitch them. Like, let's, let's, like I said, tear it apart and rebuild it into something even better. 
and something even more that can't be said no to, basically. (laughs) That's just so common sense that anyone who says anything against it's just like, what did you just say? Did you really <laughs> just say you don't want kids to eat? You're like, uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, that in as political as food is, like, if we can find ways to make it just almost humanist in a way, mm-hmm. then we can hopefully move past a bunch of those roadblocks that often stand in the way of like actually affecting some kind of change. Right. Mm-hmm. I think the the organization around like. I mean, this is organizing, but uh, planning to have everyone read letters together mm-hmm. and to show up together in numbers is so, I, I don't know. I think when I think of like writing or calling my elected representatives, it feels so lonely mm. and it feels kind of like the times that I've I've written or called feel, I mean, even public comment just feels... Yeah it feels kind of lonely and it feels like you're delivering this thing that you've put so much work and energy into and then just sort of, they're like, thanks, yeah, bye. Three-minute timer's yeah, up. Yeah, like, like yeah. okay, <laughs> cool, whatever, noted. Um, and I think, yeah, that that community piece is something that, I don't know, just like didn't click for me until you said it. I was mm. like, that's, I think that's why it feels so disheartening to 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 write or to call sometimes yeah. is that you're not seeing all of the other people that are doing the same and like really mm-hmm. feeling that yeah that community yeah. energy behind it and i had kind of like a fish like initially just been like oh yeah let's do like a like change.org petition mm-hmm. or whatever and i was just like those those do they feel so lonely like you click mm-hmm. send and you're you're <laughs> on it and like that Okay, and then <laughs> you're there, and like, and then yeah. that's, that's it, and then it yeah. goes nowhere. And there's nothing really personal about it. It, you know, when I feel like if I were in a position of like elected official, you know, I would see the number and I'd be like, okay, and then I would see like this form thing, and I'd be like, thirteen thousand people really said the exact same thing and have right. the exact same experience, mm-hmm. and you know, we all have such different perspectives and experiences. Um, that are all very invalid and very important. And I think, you know, we, we should all be allowed to really say everything just from how we have experienced it. And mm-hmm. that, that opens up way more minds and eyes, I think, uh, than just like a simple form uh, form letter or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's, that was kind of the idea of switching over to like everyone writing their own letters. Um, mm-hmm. And then also the parts of the, you know, really thinking about it and talking about it with other like friends and, you know, write letters to get like, not even just together as like one letter, but like have like little writing workshops, like with your friends too. Mm-hmm. And like yeah. talk to each other about your experiences and grow, grow together as you do the letter writing campaign, as opposed to just like click and send on a, on a mm-hmm. petition. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And I do think that's what's really powerful about you just as an individual community member. And I hear you, you know, like wanting to be involved in community-based decentralized organizing. I hear that. But I I think that in Lawrence sometimes like everyone is upset. Everyone is like in these bubbles of, <laughs> like, you know, yeah. like of being really, really angry or sad about, you know, various issues. Yeah. And so to not have a central organizing you know, like an idea to organize around can be challenging and to find the people who you want to be in community with who are feeling the same way as you without some sort of, you know, without like a, a, a writing workshop where you can go and meet people. Like I, that's how I feel, you know, like yeah. where, where do I find the people who are willing, you know, who have the energy and the time and the same anger. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. Well, and to not feel uh, talking about classic Lawrence things like you uh, should or need to, invent it fresh, uh-huh. <laughs> you yeah. know, like uh-huh. there are people out there doing this work already and who have expertise. And yeah, I think, I think the challenge, and I mean, we run into this so much at the library is like navigating that and trying mm-hmm. to find those people in those groups and join them as opposed to like, it's just occurred to me that this right. is a problem right. and I'm going yeah. to invent my own solution. Right. It's mm-hmm. like, that yeah. energy is awesome, but yeah, right. versus like, like studying a community. gap, yeah, like finding a solution that that it makes sense, and then rallying people to that cry, like it's really 
important work. Yeah, that's what I really like about decentralized organizing is because like if you think about it from, let's say, like a university perspective, right? You have all these professors who research something for 10 years and then they come up with a conclusion that's now 10 years old. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> You're just like, wait, what? If we just had a constant conversation, we'd not only be more connected to each other, but mm-hmm. we would witness the evolution of the issue. Mm-hmm as opposed to studying it so stagnantly and then like 10 years later being like, we have a solution that maybe would have worked 10 years ago. (laughs) Let's start again. And then you hit the like, you know, the Groundhog Day button and then you're like right up up in it again. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I I don't know. I feel like in this this time of sort of feeling like we're constantly – Responding to emergencies or like trying to find a parachute, it mm. also does feel nice to have something that, you know, this is this is urgent. It is a huge issue. It does need to be addressed as soon as possible, but it is also done in the form of, of building something and growing and, mm-hmm. you know, looking toward something positive. And yeah, I think that's... It's really powerful. Energizing. For me, yeah. that's like, oh, this is like a hopeful, exciting thing. Right. Yeah. And yeah, we don't have enough of that. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, another beautiful thing about it, I, I think too, is that we're not only, you know, focusing on that food aspect, but if we were to start, um, you know, a sustainable form of agriculture with that, right, this also becomes a climate crisis issue. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're localizing our food, um, we're also cutting down on carbon emissions because the average item in our grocery store travels 500 miles before we buy it and eat it. And that is a lot. <laughs> and that is really bad. <laughs> um, and so, you know, it, it's so multifaceted, I think, is the other thing behind it. And, like, you know, I mentioned it's it's a food thing. It's a climate thing. It's also a, a racial justice thing. Mm-hmm. And so the other idea behind food as a public work is – creating space for BIPOC producers as well. So Mm -hmm. in the United States, 98% of farmland is owned by white folks. And that is completely and entirely by design. That they're the big, the largest, at least dollar amount, um, you know, civil rights lawsuit in U.S. history is a farm lawsuit. Mm -hmm. It is a lawsuit against the USDA for discriminating against specifically black farmers. And they actually Mm -hmm. had to open up the pay period twice uh, in order to not even quite get everyone paid who deserved it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can, that comes with a continued loss of land for black farmers. And so we can also make this, uh, you know, create some kind of racial equity in agriculture too if we provide a space and living wages for uh, for BIPOC producers to really to really get into agriculture. And that's a very, you know, getting, having a, a a government paid and benefited job is so much more secure than throwing a $1.2 million loan at them and saying, good luck in the shark tank. Right. <laughs> right. right? Like it's, that's what that is if we're being mm-hmm. real about it. Um, and so, you know, it's food, it's climate, it's racial justice. It's, it's so many different things. Um, I don't really have a smooth segue to this, <laughs> but uh, the other part I wanted to mention was like advocating at a federal level, right? So we talked about uh, you know, what, what we're trying to do locally mm-hmm. and how we're trying to like stir up uh, the attention of elected officials to start thinking about this and potentially fund it. Um, if we're thinking on a national scale, so again, I mentioned, you know, 98% uh, of farmland is owned by white folks. And that means that's where all a lot of that farm bill money goes. Mm-hmm. And there's our keyword here, farm bill. Um, mm-hmm. Just to provide some perspective on that, it's a bill that comes up every five to eight years that federally funds agriculture in many different ways, so many different ways, including the uh, SNAP programs, so the foods mm. that, the, the programs that feed people. Um, if I were to just silo off 2020 alone, let's just do that. Let's just look at that one year. We spent $120 billion on agriculture. $120 billion. <laughs> um, if the original, the original name for this was actually the People's Century Farm. So mm-hmm. if you're familiar, century farms are like farms that have been, I think it's within like the same family for like a hundred years, which if I think about like how those families got access to land and the, the, what they were extended for who they were, yep. it, it, it's not that great, but let's, let's just, that's another thing. <laughs> um, so if $120 billion in 2020, one year of spending, if we were to take about four and a half percent of that, we could set up $100 million farm endowments in every single state, D.C., and Puerto Rico. 
And that would literally, literally be, you know, $100 million, million dollar operating budget. Mm-hmm. Let's, you know, you could operate it, you could operate it for 50 years. It's not 100 years because you obviously have startup costs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it, you might even have to buy land. Mm-hmm. You would have to spend a good amount of money on the infrastructure, like the the commercial kitchen and the, you know, you could build some really seriously nice ones with that kind of money. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, 4% of national spending for one year and farm bills, I mean, they're five to eight years. So if you were to do that every year for five years, mm-hmm. you could have five in every state. DC and Puerto Rico. So it's like mm-hmm. each one of those creating five to six million dollars worth of food and services yeah. every year. Whereas the 120 that we spent just went out and away. Right. It went out away in pockets or was further spent. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I'm I just, just so I'm just yeah. so floored by like how small of a percentage that, right? is that would for the yeah, impact and yeah. for like yeah. a lasting impact. Yeah. It just yeah. And it, it, these aren't things that the federal government doesn't understand because if you slap jobs programs on it, every senator would know what that meant, mm-hmm. right? And so it's 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 also kind of like I, I'm really hoping to get into the room with some national organizers uh, who directly advocate for the farm bill and who lobby on, mm-hmm. on the farm bill. And I think I might be able to do that within the next month or two. That's taken a while to get to that point. Yeah. Um, but I really want to pitch it to them, see what they think about it, and further workshop it into something that could possibly happen. And I mean, the, the farm bill is it's coming up quick. It's coming up so quick. Mm. Uh, it's going to be really it's, – it's already started, really. The talks and, and conversations have already started in D.C. on it, and it should be done within a year. So, wow. you wow. know, it's it's go time on the national front if it were to become something that was actually, like, nationally endowed. Yeah. Uh, but that's when I, you know, when I say the money and resources are there, like, they're there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, some of that money is literally paid to farmers not to grow things. Right, yeah. Because and, like, just some wild, yeah. wild ideas about what sustainability is. And, I mean, I've done... I have a, a write-up we can also maybe link about, uh-huh. oh, like, yeah. breaking down the farm bill and the history of the farm mm. bill. Um, and, you know, we've always tried to, like, do sustainability stuff with the farm bill, but it has never offset agricultural destruction ever. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's just, I mean, that's just science. That's just data. That's it. not me being like, oh, they could have done this or that. No, it's like, no. It never offset the destruction that agriculture caused. Yeah. Um, hmm. So, yeah, maybe we can link that, too. We absolutely but yeah, can. For sure. National yeah. conversation, farm bill. Anybody out there listening has a way to connect with state or like national officials. Let's let's talk. Like, get me in the room. I'm yeah. I'm ready. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. I hope we can make that connect. <laughs> We've got like 25 listeners. <laughs> no, it's not true. <laughs> We've got a few more than that. It only uh, takes one. Yes. It only takes somebody one. listening you. to this. You're thinking right now. It's you. And you know, <laughs> our listeners are probably self-selecting for people who are interested in public good, and so it's yeah. Yeah. It's maybe not okay. Or honestly, if there's a big, if there's a really big funder who wants to like five million dollar pilot it, let's, let's oh yeah, like, true, you know, like yeah, so true, <laughs> ten million dollar pilot. There was like, just that ten million dollar <laughs> gift in Lawrence. I know. Okay, well, um, okay, come on, Lawrence. I know there's a few <laughs> of you out there. Um, well, okay, this is like yeah, so much. Thank you. Um, so much for laying it all out oh and I God. hope that everyone is feeling like really energized and inspired after hearing that um, but let's do our last section yeah um, do you want to go first what are you reading what am I reading okay it's something I recently picked up again I've mostly been reading black and white uh, baby books for like <laughs> focusing on like you know using your eyes because mm-hmm. you're a fresh human but what <laughs> wait, I've been wait, reading wait 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 <laughs> yeah what I have one right here actually yeah <laughs> Uh, this one's called Cluck and Moo. Nice. Uh, it's a high contrast <laughs> book by Frida Bing. Oh, does, um, does the contrast, I don't, does it help you like hone your vision? Yeah. Yeah. You can only see so far and you can only really focus so much um, as, a, as a baby. Oh. Um, and high contrast images like these are easier for babies to first kind of see and like train their eyes to, wow. to, to, Whoa. to, That's to like learn a, how to see wow. things we don't remember. Yeah. It's like a baby wow. room decor. Yeah, so, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty simple, you know, cluck and moo, pigs oink, you know, horses neigh, that kind of thing, all in black and white. But cool. other, other than things like this and, <laughs> you know, like books that are made of fabric that just mostly get chewed on, yeah. uh, I recently picked up um, or re-picked up this book called Flora, the Aztec Herbal. 
Um, so there's this codex from 1552 that I was lucky to find in a footnote of a footnote of a book in the Oakland Public Library. Thank you, Oakland Public Library. <laughs> I appreciate you. Um, and it led me to like an old bookstore online that was like, all right, here's some really old books. And I was like, I've never bought an old book. And it was like $120. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is really expensive. But it was a 1940 copy of an English translation of that codex from 1552 <laughs> that got one publication in 1940. Oh my God. Other little tidbit and feminist story around that one. The woman who did it, her book was only published once, and it was the official John Hopkins publication and translation of that book. Dude Bro Professor Guy <laughs> decides to compete with her and do a competing translation that was not the official John Hopkins Press uh-uh. publication. And guess who still is getting published to this nice. day? Yeah. Yep. We Dude know Bro who. Professor Man. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, that side note aside, I got that book, the 1940 book of it. It's like the oldest book I own. It's like yeah. one of my favorite books. And then, you know, researching it more and more, I find that a lot of people have actually tried to translate it or, like, come up with uh, translations of it. And it's really hard to really know exactly which plant is which plant because it's an herbalist handbook and it's based on plants um, and and herbal medicine. And, you know, there's different translations. There's different Mm -hmm. uh, Latin names provided. Those also change over time. Mm And what this book, Flora the Aztec Herbal, does is it, it conglomerates all of those translations and puts together the clearest picture of what they probably all are. Hmm. Cool. And so I've kind of been going through it again, going back through it again, you know, looking for things that we can grow here mm-hmm. yeah. um, and trying to find things that we grow here. And the illustrations are beautiful. I know this isn't going to help our podcast listeners <laughs> much, but <laughs> oh, yeah, they are. this is one of the very few codexes that was actually written and illustrated by indigenous Mexican people because mm-hmm. most of the codexes and things that we have are Spanish, uh, Spanish account. They're yeah. Spanish account. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, this is a really, really special book to me. And I actually had to have this ordered from, like, Europe because I couldn't find anybody who, like, published it or, like, printed yeah, it here. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's it's got all of the information I've been really trying to research by myself from the <laughs> 1940 copy uh, really beautifully laying out in there. Um, and I'm going to kind of go through it and see if there's anything else I want to add to, you know, my my indigenous Mexican crops that I, that I want to grow. Yeah. That's awesome. Awesome. Yeah, and I grow a few of them that are that are in here right now. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, so that's that's what I'm rereading, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's so powerful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm glad to hear more about the codex too, because I hear you yeah. reference it every time I'm in a room with you and now it's like, okay, this is Oh, more I should get you codex. a copy of that. There's the SARE publication. Okay. So I did a research grant for uh, sustainable agriculture research and education. It's a branch of the USDA. Um that was centered on that codex. Uh-huh. Well, no, sorry. No, it was centered <laughs> on the Florentine codex. Um, oh, okay. Maybe that's what I, I don't know. Yeah, I hear you say codex This a lot. one's Codex Barberini, which was uh, really one of the few that's written and illustrated by indigenous people. And then Codex, the Florentine codex is a Spanish account filtered through uh, indigenous Mexican people, obviously. Um, and that's the one where the research came from. Maybe we can, we're going to have like a billion links on this. Is oh, that, is yeah. That that's, okay. that's what the show notes are for. Footnotes. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. You know, I wouldn't have found anything about these without footnotes. Yeah. Footnotes are important. It's yeah. true. It's <laughs> true. Yes. Okay. So okay. codex, codices. There we go. Codices. Writings cool. from the 1500s. Yeah. That's what I- <laughs> so, Yeah. Nerd, I know. No, it's so cool. I mean, that's a good I'm one. I'm just thinking about going between like a black and white baby book and this. Uh-huh. You're just like, ah. Uh-huh. I don't know. This one, somehow the black and white baby book is kind of like heavier to think about because you're like, the perspective of this baby is wild. <laughs> like, and I don't remember that at all, but I, it happened to me too. Like, you know. Starting that eye training. Yeah. For yeah. Life. That's important. Development. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, what are you all reading? <laughs> no. Oh my gosh. Okay, go ahead, Ruby. Um, I am very, very excited to start reading this book. Uh, I was just up in Portland and went to Powell's for way too long um, and found this book called Working Like a Homosexual, Camp Capital Cinema um, by Matthew Tinkham, I think is how you say it. Um, and it's like a... It's like a Marxist analysis of camp and commodity and, yeah, I don't know what else to say. I have not 
started reading it, but (laughs) that is, it's very exciting. Well, and Ruby just got back from like the best vacation ever. So I did have a beautiful vacation. Yeah. Yeah. I I went to, I went to Berkeley for the first time. Yeah. (laughs) I'd never been, I'd never been to that part of California at all. It's, it's extremely beautiful. Mediterranean climate. Can't beat it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, I, yeah. I heard my 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 friend was paying for rent, and I don't want to do that. Uh, it's terrifying, but yeah, but gorgeous. Yes, yes. yeah. Um, and then I went up to Portland after that, which similar, terrifying housing, but yeah, beautiful. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. Ate a lot of food. Yeah, <laughs> the vacation. Oh yeah. Yes. I'm very food centered on my vacations. Yes. Too. Yeah. yeah. My very rare, very rare occasion. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um. Okay. Well, I'm I'm reading. I'm still on this sort of post-apocalyptic novel kick. When are you? <laughs> which I have been for like several are months. All yeah. This right. Yeah. But, <laughs> it's, but it's great to. It, no, it's like it's like count, working counter to that impulse to have this conversation with you and think about a future <laughs> that is not. So um, I just read Moon of the Crescent Snow by Wabgashig Rice, and I, I might have not. You know, who knows if I pronounced your name right? I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, so that was a sort of uh, story of like. Um, uh, power lines breaking down, all manners mm. of communication breaking down. Mm-hmm. It's really, it's winter and it's in very northern Canada. And so everything is like frozen and they, you know, they're running out of food. And so the sort of, um, yeah, story of like people turning against each other and then, and then kind of moving into the future without modern conveniences. Um, I liked it a lot. Very good. It was a short, it was kind of a, um, a, a short read, but it was good. Um, and then I read Sea of Tranquility, which is Emily St. John Mandel's newest novel. And Emily St. John Mandel wrote Station Eleven, Ponta, which I will not stop. Maybe you already knew that, but I will not stop no. talking about it. Okay. Um, <laughs> Station Eleven is like a pandemic novel. Um, so people have been kind of obsessed with it for the past two mm-hmm. and a half years. You might you might know why. <laughs> um, and and it's like in this pandemic, in this novel, many, many people die and the stragglers are then left to like recreate life. And the novel centers on a on a theater band, like a roving theater band that traverses this area that's around like former Chicago. And um, it's, I don't know, I, I like it. <laughs> <laughs> and Sea of Tranquility is um, kind of similar. It's more vibes that are like, it's a pandemic. The world's ending. And I don't. I don't know how you. I don't, I don't know either. how you do this. I don't either. It's I, too I, much. You. I, don't, I don't. Yeah, but I don't. It could be bad for my mental health. This could be. I don't know. Maybe something. you're like doubling down on the bad and like. Like backflipping your way out, out of it. Yeah. Way. Like it's just like. Yeah. I cannot speak I any more to this. <laughs> um, yeah, I think those are the two. Those are the two I'll mention. Yeah. So okay. Yeah. I love, I love, you have like this whole cohesive, like coherent, like <laughs> This self, is why we though. have guests on. Uh, yeah. Because they're always so much better than us. Yeah. It's That's true. really, no. it's true. <laughs> <sighs> okay. Well, yeah. uh, thank you so much, yeah, Fanta. Thank you. Yes, thank you both. Listeners, yeah. you are welcome that for yes. that enlightening episode. <laughs> and um, yeah, please read write letters. The, the rich show notes yes. that we will have oh, yeah. with so many, many links. Yes. Yeah. Yes. We'll cite properly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. I like that you are kind of more in, in tune to um, like citing things well, referencing things well than yeah. we are as a brain. Yeah. We're just, no, because we're just hunting for the information. We're not like, we're not having to cite it necessarily. Uh, yeah. All right. <laughs> well, okay. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye. Write bye, some letters. Yeah. <laughs> Tune in next month for another episode of Oranges and Peaches. Find the show notes on lplks.org and don't forget to subscribe. And please rate or comment. You'll help others find the podcast. Our info librarians are Hazlitt Henderson and Ruby McKinnon Love with theme music and editing by Joel Bonner. This has been a production of the Lawrence Public Library.